Hey, this is Peter Dobson, and you're listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and welcome to this episode of What a Character. My guest today is Lance Henriksen. In our interview, Lance will talk to us about growing up on the mean streets of New York, getting snubbed by Lee Marvin, and meeting James Cameron for the first time. It's all that and more on today's episode of What a Character. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of What a Character. Our guest today is a man who has been acting for over five decades. He's usually known for playing everything from total psychopaths to rugged heroes to tortured individuals. And believe me, he has had quite the life. This is a man who went from surviving the mean streets of New York to traveling the world as a merchant marine to painting murals all over Europe. It wasn't until the mid-60s that he decided to give acting a try and started performing in local Boston theater productions. It wasn't until later that he decided to follow his dreams to New York where he got cast in stage productions alongside such actors as Al Pacino and John Voight. After spending many years working on the stage, he wound up getting roles in classic films such as Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Prince of the City, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and The Right Stuff. In the early 80s, he wound up getting cast in the cult classic creature feature Piranha 2, where he got the chance to work with a very young director, who eventually turned him into a cult figure. That young director was a man by the name of James Cameron, who eventually cast him as Detective Vukovic in The Terminator and Bishop in Aliens. As a result of gaining prominent roles in these two hit films, he was eventually cast in roles in films like Near Dark, Pumpkinhead, Stone Cold, Hard Target, and many more. In the mid-90s, he gained his first regular TV role, as criminal profiler Frank Black and the award-winning series Millennium, which ran for three seasons on the Fox network. After that, he wanted to provide his talents as a voice actor in Disney's Tarzan and Transformers Animated. Recently, he gained acclaim for his role as Willis in Viggo Mortensen's directorial debut, Falling. And aside from Bill Paxton, he's one of two actors who has been killed by an alien, a Terminator, and a Predator. Please welcome our guest, Mr. Lance Henriksen. 
Lance, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Colin. Thank you. That's a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> oh, thank you. Now, we'll spark something in me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. Uh, let's start off talking about your childhood. Uh, what was your life like growing up in New York? I, I didn't go to school. I, I went to three years of grammar school, and that was it. I, I couldn't stand uh, the whole thing. It was, it was almost like a, a terrible political horror show, oh. you know, teachers and the, and the whole structure of it. It meant nothing to me. It was just abuse, you know, in a lot of ways. Because right. I couldn't read, so I'd stand in front of the class and they would laugh at me. You know, so I thought, you know, I'm out of here. And I was. I, I split. I just said, no, not doing it. And so it took me a long time to learn how to read. But I did. I mean, I've educated myself through the arts. And so anyway, uh, more to the point, the crazy nature of, of what I get cast in, I still I'm willing to go and do it. Because it's an adventure. I mean, that's not school. That's not prepping. It's living. It's living it. Right. And I'm capable of living these fantasies and 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 realities as well. Because I I don't know. The next movie I'm going to do is so exciting because it's about about a turn and twist thing. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable script. And when I read something like that, I get real excited. So I'm preparing now. I have, I have an acting coach and I've got a buddy who, who runs lines with me incessantly until I have them pat. And then, and I pay them. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, I'm happy to pay, you know, I mean, it's all, it's all now I have a complete, way of working where I get to the set and I'm ready, you know, and I'm ready like for the adventure because I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. You don't know until you're doing it, you know, so, and you can, you can, you can have pretenses, but that'll show, you know, you yeah. like, I'm going to pull my number four now. That's bullshit. That, that, <laughs> you know, so. Right. But it's been a wonderful life of learning. I think I would suggest anybody to try it just to see if there is a part of their desires, you know, they're having, having to build who you become, you know, in life and by risking, you know, so, yeah. It's like what they say, you know, life is the best teacher. It is. It is. It is. Look at us now. What is going to come out of this COVID thing? I, I didn't mean to bring it up. But That's okay. <laughs> it slipped out, you know, because I we're know. all surrounded by it and a bunch of politicians. And you know how much we all love the politicians <laughs> uh, and listen to them talk. They just babble. And, and some of them are good and some of them are torturing us so i don't like to be tortured no <laughs> one, one does my main thing. Don't torture me. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a hell of a speech you made man at the beginning of this it's really i didn't realize until recently i'd done uh, 
I think it's uh, 260 movies. So. So at what point in your childhood did you become enamored with the art of acting and, and just art in general? I think, I think my ability to lie was really cultivated by my parents. You know, I, <laughs> and I'm just, I mean, I, I could really pour it on. And, and, and there wasn't guilt because I wasn't particularly religious, you know, that I'm going to go to hell because I tell a lie. And, and that's the beginning of it, because it's all a lie, really, when you get down to it. Moment to moment is truthful, and you experience it. But in reality, the whole thing is a lie. It's, it's a story. It's what people used to do back in the 1400s, where they'd sit around a fireplace get drunk because the water was bad, so they would drink instead and tell stories. And that's really where where these things begin. I have a good one, you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now we've added to it all the digital and the, and the, and the, the visuals are amazing. I mean, uh, I'm on, I'm on uh, YouTube a lot, watching a lot of, uh, you know, uh, like stuff from Venezuela and Japan and China and everywhere. And I'm gobbling it up. I never seen so much in my life. You know, it's like, I know I realize I got 20. I've I've watched 23 episodes of uh, Simon Bolivar and loved every minute of it. <laughs> you know, it's all in Spanish, but they have, you know, a little, you have to read it too. Subtitles. Yeah. That's the beauty of this whole streaming age that we're in is that all this foreign content is easily available now. Like back in the day, you'd have to probably find like a bootleg tape or something, but now you could just, you know, go on your computer and find it with subtitles and everything. Yeah. And then you, I mean, there's one from Israel that's a cop movie from Israel. And I never saw such good acting. I mean, it was like, these guys are real, man. This is not BS, you know. And, and the stakes are real. So it's like, wow. You know, and the right. Palestinian actors and all of that. It's just amazing. I have no idea where we're headed, all of us. You know, but okay. it's, man, there's a lot of opportunity to immerse yourself, you know. So. Right. Instead of judge just immerse and see what happens and see how you feel. Yeah. Right. So how did your experiences in the Navy and as a painter shape you as a person and as an actor? Yeah, because it, it is a social thing. I mean, the reason you paint something is because you have the skill. And then, and then when other people look at it, they get excited that they have a little of that skill or, or they like it because it's it's uh, broad and and fearless. If you can be fearless, you know, mm-hmm. instead of impulsive, you know. But yeah, it's it, it was it's all about community. I mean, I I don't really think that. I mean, when I watch some of these shows in in a language I don't even understand, I'm starting. Oh, I'll tell you a good one. Falling. Uh, premiered at uh, 
at the uh, Macau International Film Festival in wow. China. And I won Best Actor. Wow. I was shocked because it's an American-themed story. I mean, it's all about a farm, a family, and, a, you know, I mean, right. and, and our world. And they saw it and, and connected. I mean, it's like that took a lot of votes, a lot of votes. And Vigo's work uh, with this movie, the cutting and, and, and how he told that story is unbelievable. I mean, it was a journey when we did it. It was like there was no acting. This was going on, you know, and winter was going on. And, you know, everything, everything lent itself because of his focus directing. It was great. It was, was this great. shot pre-COVID or during COVID? What? Was, was falling a shot before COVID or during COVID? Um. I can't remember now. I guess I don't want to. <laughs> but I think, I think toward the end of the movie, it was all happening, you know. Right. I had to fly to London and do the dubbing and, you know, do stuff like that. And, and I remember having to, you know, this thing up your nose that, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> They have found a way to invade our bodies, our minds. <laughs> I know. We're living in an episode of Millennium. <laughs> Good morning, Lance. And it goes like D'Artagnan sticking a sword up your nose. <laughs> it's not a pleasant feeling. I know. I know what you're talking about. Not good. Not good. But, but in order, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that because I because I want it and, and I'm talking about how great I am. That's not what I'm doing. I, I just want you to know that even a foreign country, that their, their, their whole world is different than ours, but they're open to, open to things. And so it's, it was like amazing because it was in English. It wasn't dubbed into Chinese. It had, it had subtitles for them, you know. Right. So, yeah, it's it's amazing what movies play over there and, and what movies don't. Like you'll you'll have some American films that are like comedies, and they go to China, and then somehow by accident, you know, they become a hit film, even though you know their their sense of humor is different. And no, no, right now, for instance, I mean, to, to have thirty two episodes about Simon Bolivar, um, from the time he was a little kid to the time he was, the, you know, the president of of all of Latin America, right. it was, and you see the, you see, you see wonderful acting and the romances and all kinds of stuff, man. And it wouldn't even be done here. Nobody in America would do that. They wouldn't waste the money. You know, it would right. be the waste of money. But I don't know. There are so many talented people in the world that some societies have more money for that and it's they don't make as much as we do but that's okay you know what i mean right doesn't matter i've been to some countries where you know like well, i don't want to mention them i don't want to talk down about anybody you know but right but it's all been an adventure i've gone to so many countries of the world i've worked in you know 
the ones you know, I mean, Australia, and, but Romania and other countries, uh, Bulgaria, and, you know, <laughs> I've been all over the world. What's it like shooting in Bulgaria? I've always heard scary stories about what it's like making movies there. Uh, uh, the, I think the biggest stories you probably hear is about what hotel somebody stayed in. Oh, you know, I remember uh, doing a film about a. It was a ripoff of a movie that we did in America, where uh, they injected uh, like a, a spaceship into the body of, of a human to try to stop a nuclear bomb from going off. And, and it's absurd. I mean, and <laughs> when I went to Romania, not only was that story absurd, but the spaceship that I was in was all made of wood. <laughs> Robin Gibbons wow. was with me and, and she was a scientist. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the spaceship seats and everything were made of wood. I mean, and I thought, if you can overcome this, you're going to do well. So it turned into a slight comedy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But those experiences are not terrible. They're just, I remember going into a coffee shop in Bulgaria, and it's all in Cyrillic. Mm-hmm. So I said to the guy, cappuccino, because that's universal, you know, cappuccino. Right. And the guy went, and as he walked away, I said, what's the problem? I smell it. I can, you, you make it, you know, and the guy comes back with a cappuccino. <laughs> I went, what the hell just happened? And the truth <laughs> is, this means yes over there, and this means no. Oh, says, wow. <laughs> And I went, okay, I'll put that in my book. You know, I mean, I'll put that in my, <laughs> my memory book. And I, and I really did come up uh, with a use for that. But anyway. <laughs> uh, despite having a, a rough life early on, you've always managed to find positivity. What, what was always your secret to hanging on in spite of tragedy? It's a desperation. You know, I ran away from home when I was 12. And I went all the way across the country. And I was a very, at 12, I didn't look 12. I looked younger. And I rode freight trains and hitchhiked. And, and, and what happened was I realized I have a street smart that's from New York, from where I was raised in the streets. You know, I shine shoes in New York, you know, as a little kid to make money to go watch movies. And <laughs> I did. Right. A lot of movies that dumped out at five in the morning, I'd watch it twice or three times. And then I'd get my ass whipped because I was disappeared, you know. But, <laughs> but anyway, it was all like uh, the adventure is, is the part of it because I couldn't rely on people. All the people in my life as a child were, were on their own journey and, and I couldn't. Uh, I was there, but I wasn't, you know what I mean? I was right. there. And so uh, that, that world of, um, of the arts, of, of movies and, and other things, plays. I used to sneak into the Broadway plays because what would happen is they'd let out at intermission. And then what you do is go in with everybody and find a seat. And I watched half of all the Broadway plays that were on. Wow. 
Yeah. What, what plays did you get to see? Oh, God. Oh, God. Evita with uh, Patti LuPone. And I saw, I mean, I, I was just, I was free as a bird. Because nobody really gave a shit if I fell off the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, didn't. Right. Uh, it would be all right. Well, we don't have to bury him. He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a story about your first paid acting gig and your run-in with Lee Marvin. That, that was ridiculous. I mean, he came, came to a, I, I got picked up for vagrancy. And I think I was 15, something like that, in the South. Mm -hmm. Phoenix, Arizona, I think it was, or it was Tucson, or, or it was, I think it was right on the border of California. Yuma, it was. Oh, okay. Yuma was right on the border of California. They, I think they said, would you guys like to, they were asking the prisoners and they were giving everybody five bucks to march out in the compound, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did. And I, and I asked the guys that were making the movie, like the lighting guys and stuff. And I, I said, can you get me out of here? Cause I'm in here for vagrancy and five bucks is not enough to get me out. <laughs> All right. They said, oh, sure. And I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> My first uh, with uh, with the uh, reality of movies. They're not real. Now, in the mid-60s, you decided to fully pursue a career as an actor. What, what inspired you to make that leap from working as a potter and painter to working as an actor? Well, you know, it was really hit or miss because there were a lot of plays going on off, off Broadway. And my first play that I got was uh, in Herbert Berghoff Studios was doing a three plays of the sea. And it was Eugene O'Neill. And it was like boundaries for Cardiff in the zone. And, and there were three of them. And, I got the lead and didn't even know it. I had the lead in it. The character was one of the lead, the lead. And, it, and it, the cast was huge. I mean, it was all, we, I mean, it was all semen and everything. The guy said, well, I'd like you to read for it. And at the time I couldn't read. Hmm. I mean, my reading was like, duh, you know, very, struggling for every word. But anyway, what happened was I said, you know something? I just got off a ship and what I could do is build your set, the whole forecastle of the ship, the bow mm -hmm. and the deck and all of the accoutrements that go with a ship because I know them all. And the guy said, really? And I said, yeah, I would do that. You know, there's not, it's not a month, it's a, a month away from the opening. And so he said, oh, that is great. I, I, if you'd really do that, I'd be really happy because you know your stuff, right? Because I told him everything. And, right. and he said, okay, let's read. He got excited. He went, let's read. And, and I went, and I could do the lighting. And he went, what? <laughs> no shit. So it was this big con job I was doing. So I didn't have to read because I knew 
that if I'm building the set and all of that shit, I'll have plenty of time to learn these lines. I put them all on tape. I had somebody put them on tape for me. And I memorized everything from tape. <laughs> Nobody knew, you know, so. Right. And then I, and we did the show and it was, it was a real hit for an off, off Broadway, you know. We had a full house every night. And, and I learned a great deal from that, man. It was one of the reviews. Mel Gusso reviewed me. I remember we went to Sardi's to have a beer because that's traditional. If you're on Broadway or off Broadway, you go to Sardi's and you have a, a beer. And then somebody came running in with the New York Times and there was, my picture was there. And I went, what the fuck? Wow. What just happened? <laughs> anyway, that, that, that's, that's the, the romantic part. And, and, and it really was because, and, and it is a romantic business. You fall in love with this girl and that girl and this girl and that girl. You know what I mean? They're, right. And then you find out you suck at falling in love. You know, it really <laughs> sucks. <laughs> Every girl in New York had a cat box with a cat. And I can't stand the smell of the cat shit. <laughs> like, anyway, I was sleeping on couches. I had no money for a long, long time. And begging forgiveness. But anyway, over the years, I mean, you find that your story, your story comes directly from your childhood. And you're the one that brought that up. And it's true. Every all the uh, incidents of my childhood uh, propelled me as as much as made me duck in a certain way. I mean, I was very good at ducking. You couldn't hit me because I was so fast. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you make your way from the Boston theater community to the New York theater community? Well, Boston had theater company in Boston, and they let me do some plays up there. You know, and, and it was a great learning experience. I don't know if I was very good. I was a, a, a charming piece of meat, but I don't know how deep I got into some of these things, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and as I have progressed in my life as an actor, I work harder on it and, and try to come up with something that I can do, that I can really do. And, and, and it's worked. Like I remember you brought up Bishop and Bishop, I had, I had to go fly to London and audition because the law in England is if there is a British person that could do that role and is better than me, uh, then I wouldn't get the role. But I, I auditioned for Jim and he already knew me. I mean, it was like, and he said, if I had found somebody better, I would have hired them. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I got lucky. But anyway. <laughs> so what happened, I had decided that uh, the innocence of Bishop came from the idea that he had and no animus toward anything. All he wanted to do was help. That was his. And so I thought uh, if I was a young black kid in South Africa during apartheid, I would, I would be 
I would feel that way. I would feel that I was under threat at any given time, but I wouldn't fight it. And I was more of a, I just wouldn't know how to fight it. So, and I remember, uh, I mean, I remember Sigourney knocking a pan out of my hand and the, the bread went all over, the cornbread went all over the floor. And I got down on my hands and knees and picked it all up really carefully and wrote it back. <laughs> and, uh, and that proved to me that I was right about that because what, what other emotion would I have? You know, right. And so uh, there, there was a there was a click that happened about Bishop that I found great innocence in him, in that character. He had great innocence, and so and it and it actually paid off because later uh, that was like you know that was like one of the things that people liked about that that character. And so you know, it's a, it's a constant growth an actor, layers, layers of, of successes and failures and ideas. How did you transition from acting in the theater to acting in films in the early 70s? There wasn't any. Because what I felt was, you're going to find me. I'm not looking for you. I'm not looking for where is the camera, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Let the camera chase me. I don't, I don't want to chase the fucking camera. Excuse my French, but <laughs> it's okay. It's machinery, you know, any, any more than I chase. I don't watch stuff on my computer. That's a taboo. I need a big screen. I need, a, you know, right. This new shit they come out with, you know, YouTube and, and HBO and all of that. They, they've done some really good stuff because they're not condemned to, perfection they they can give you a, they can give you a, a sampling of something and that's good enough because it doesn't have to have all of that what you see when you see a really good movie shot well and and all the work you have to do to do that so it's it's some of the shows are very quick and they're very a lot of good actors out there that are just want to live it too because when you're living it you're that's what it's about. Like, it's like scoring with your girlfriend. You, you know, you did something that they really liked and you didn't even know you were doing it. <laughs> now you want, and you, you know, you get along for about a week or two and then <laughs> you move on. Ah, oh, what a thing to say. But. <laughs> now you, you got the chance to work with the, the great Sidney Lamette. What was it like working with him? Uh, what a kind man. I mean, Sydney, uh, everybody knows that Sydney loved New York actors and he wanted to do all his movies forever in New York. And then he went and did one with Paul Newman up in Boston. But that's pretty close to New York. I mean, it's, you know, it's got the New York feel, but it's a Boston feel. But he wanted that. And But anyway, he... He would always hire young out of work actors and give them a job, you know. Right. I remember I was very late. One, <laughs> I had a buddy who's a Cuban guy uh, named Lazaro Perez. He was a great guy. He's passed away, but he's, 
He was from Cuba and he, and he got into the actor's studio. I mean, he wanted to be an actor and he was an actor, but he got into the actor's studio and, and, and he, he heard that I got the job of, of an FBI guy in Dog Day where I shot him at the airport and killed him, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he, uh, he said, Lance, come on, let's go to my house. We get a bottle of red wine and we just sit there and celebrate that you got that job. So we did, you know, we sit around talking and laughing and carrying on. And I, I didn't realize how much we had drank because I, I don't drink a lot, you know, I just don't. And I wake up and I was supposed to be on the set in Brooklyn by eight o'clock. And it was eight o'clock when I woke up. So now I go, oh shit. And I run out of Lazaro's house, run down to the subway, ride the subway all the way out to Brooklyn, get off. And I realized if I don't run into makeup and also wardrobe, then I'm gonna screw up. I might get fired on the first day. <laughs> wow. My first day. So. I did. I went in and put my suit on and put the, they did the makeup and I came out on, out on, there were, it was lucky that there was a, a scene with about 500 people on the street and me and my partner, FBI guy, were mm -hmm. standing there just witnessing all of this, trying to come up with a strategy for how we're going to take this guy down, you know, and because he's, He's making a big show. He's out on the street going, Attica, Attica, you know, carrying right. on shit. And, and Sidney looks, he's right across the street from me. And he looks at me and I know he knows I'm late. And I, and he, um, I, I felt as guilty as a four-year-old that just stole all the cookies and ate them. <laughs> he goes, feels like shit, doesn't it? <laughs> And I went, yeah, <laughs> nothing was ever said again. But that, that, that's the amazing thing about Sydney. He wasn't like the typical angry, egotistical director. He always seemed like such a calm guy. It was all passion. It was all, I mean, he, he was the kindest guy. That's an example of his kindness. We were doing a scene where we were loading into the, into the, uh, to the, uh, what do they call it? Airplane van. You know, we had all the hostages and he, and he says, uh, Pacino's character says to me, you, I want you to drive because I must have looked sort of like dumb in his eyes. <laughs> and so, uh, as, as he was searching me to see if I had a gun on me, I realized if I look at him, if I look, because he's below me, if I look at him, I'm going to kill him right there, right then, just crush his head. And and we shot that part of the scene, and Sidney said, Lance, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. <laughs> and said, yeah, all right. It's, but it's... It's that affirmation that these little affirmations along the way of your career that make you believe in yourself, that you know how, you know what you're doing. 
and how to do it. And so to some degree, not a hundred percent ever, but you know, but anyway, it was like, uh, I think that's the biggest thing we can get out of this affirmation on the way to the airport, by the way, John Casals was a friend. Everybody in the van was friends. Penny Allen, John Casals, and all these people. And on the, I, every time I, I, my line was, I had to open up a, the side of a, the, the door, the driver's door, and there's the gun, right? And I, and I would turn, I say, hey, Sal, you know, listen, we don't want any accidents, so keep that gun pointed up. Okay, we might hit a bump or something. And but the problem was that I liked him so much, and he had a he had this great look. I mean, it was but it made me laugh because you know Sim sitting there with a gun, a machine gun, and we started laughing and we couldn't stop. It was like a laughing jag. Have you ever had one of those? Yeah. God, we're laughing and laughing. And then, meanwhile, they're putting lights on the van and everything. Luckily, luckily, because if we tried to do the same, we couldn't do it. We were, I mean, I'm telling you, my stomach was hurting from laughing. <laughs> I guess it was the, the thought of shooting him was like really getting to me. And it was getting him too. I'm going to get shot. <laughs> anyway. But those little moments and those affirmations and everything, you know, it's like that that kind of covers how I work. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, I wasn't schooled like at even the actor's studio. I went and auditioned to be in the actor's studio and they, they said, we don't, I was doing a, a scene out of a play with the same girl that I did the play. It's a play called Saved by James Bond, not James Bond, by a guy named Bond. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, Cockney young people. I was young, I was only 30. And so he said, we, we don't take people from like England into the actor's studio. <laughs> My buddy Lazaro was already a member. He said, he's not from England, he's from New York. And he's acting. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Cockney. He's doing a Cockney. And then they made me an observer. But I, I, didn't, I didn't like being there very much. That was traditional acting classes and shit. What do you do when you're an observer at the actor's studio? You, you come into everything that they're doing, whether it's a play or whether it's just uh, a whole group talking about somebody doing a scene on the stage. I did a scene with Francesca de Sapi, who was an incredible Italian actress. And when I was in Italy, we actually got in touch because she lives in Italy. But she, Francesca de Sapi, she was in, uh, in Godfather Two, where she was playing De Niro's wife. Beautiful Italian. Oh, okay. I know who you mean. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's stunningly beautiful. Mm. Anyway, I got to rub elbows with, over the years, with a lot of really 
good actors. I mean, wonderful actors, wonderful people. And here I am, and I'm in Agua Dulce. <laughs> what the hell am I doing out here? When I look out the window, there's nothing but barren hills, you know, <laughs> this shit. Yeah. Right. But I like it. I, I built the place, so it's, it's exactly what I kind of wanted. Very, Very cool. Simple. What do you remember about working with Francois Truffaut and in, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Oh, yeah, that was crazy, man. He was about five, four or five, five, maybe mm -hmm. five, five. Mm -hmm. And he wore great clothes. I mean, suits, I mean, the French cut suits. Right. And he, he would walk in a restaurant. We would go into a restaurant. And every woman I watched, every woman in the fucking, excuse me, in the place, <laughs> he was like a god of women. Mm. They loved him. Any woman that talked to him was swooning, you know, and they were. He had a charisma <laughs> with women I've never witnessed in my life ever before. You know, I mean, that's crazy. But he was the kindest man. I, I remember, th this is the event of my life in that movie, during that movie. I had watched uh, 400 Blows. It's a movie he made about a kid like me at my, you know, my childhood who was thrown away by his parents, put into a, a home, uh, like an orphanage, and he, he was all about trying to be free, to free himself from the oppression of parents. And, and it's a beautiful movie. It really is. And I saw it when I was 15 in the theater in black and white. And it was, and I said, who would make a story about my childhood? Holy shit. And I was so surprised because I had been thrown into uh, Catholic boarding schools, uh, Hastings on the Hudson Boys School, uh, the Norwegian Children's Home. I got, they kept getting rid of me. Every time my mother remarried, they'd throw me away. And so uh, when I met Truffaut and we were having lunch and stuff and talking, and I never mentioned 400 Blows. I mentioned Jules and Jim. I mentioned Fahrenheit 451, and we talked about those movies, but I never mentioned 400 Blows. I didn't want to let that go. And so we do the whole movie. We go to, we flew to India. You know, we worked down in, in uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Wyoming, the Devil's mm -hmm. Mountain, all that stuff, and, and in different places. And at the end of the movie, we were all going to split. We were done. The movie was done. We all had sore throats from them making so much smoke with the uh, <laughs> you know, big tanks of uh, mineral oil. It gave us all like snot balls and sore throats, you know. But anyway, so we're all getting ready to go. And I go to my trailer, and I was in a honey wagon. And... Uh, there's a package laying there. And, and I opened the package 
and it's a copy of 400 blows. And he had, wow. written, he had written on it, you are now, and I've always been that kid. Wow. I started crying like a baby. I mean, it was so moving that he, that he had, he had drawn that, that thing. He had, he had unraveled. Did you tell him about your childhood? Or? No, I, wow. I remember I would stay on set because I didn't want to miss anything. It's a big movie and it was, you know, and, and he said, you can't do that. So he got me a book on Josh Logan making movies, right? Right. And he said, I'm going to quiz you. I want you to go to your trailer and read it when you're not working. <clears throat> and I said, okay. And I only read one, one chapter. <laughs> when he quizzed me, I, I read I talked to him about the chapter with Marlon Brando where Josh Logan made the mistake of doing two takes with Marlon. The first one, Marlon did nothing. The second take, he did a lot. But Josh Logan, made, he said, Josh Logan said, I made the mistake of picking the first take where Marlon did nothing for the rest of Tea House and the August Moon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at, the, look at the interesting roads we're talking about. You know, if you're, right. if you're watching. And then, so he was that kind of guy, you know, and, and meanwhile, I'd get up at four in the morning and I went out and learned to fly. I get up at four, fly till eight. We landed on the same runway that was right in front of the hangar where we were working. And I'd get out and go to work. I could barely afford it, but I did it. I soloed and everything. Wait, you actually flew a plane? Yeah, solo. Wow. They stopped me when I was going to uh, jump, you know, parachute jump. They sent an AD out and said, no, you can't. It's <laughs> amazing. Who, who, who taught you how to fly on that film? Did you have like these ace Air Force guys? A local you know? guy. A really kind guy. Wonderful wow. guy. Yeah. Now, in 1981, you started in Piranha 2, which was uh, not only James Cameron's debut feature, but also the first movie did with him. Um, what was your first impression of James Cameron, and, and how did you hit it off so well? Um, I, I had called the producer. I had done one other movie with him called, I don't even want to tell you the name of it, but it's a, a movie in Italy where I was the young guy. I was the gigolo and there was a bunch of strange people around me. And uh, I didn't, I had no idea what that movie was about called the visitor. It was, Oh yeah. With Franco Nero and Martin Balsam, I think. So. Yeah. But I love <laughs> I mean, I was in Italy for the first time and, and and went and bought linen suits and shit, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, but anyway, so uh, the reason I brought that up is the same producer. So as uh, Piranha 2. <laughs> so I went down, uh, I, I called him before and I said, I have to drive a boat in this uh, you know, I'm a harbor cop. And I went down and I said, I, I have to try it, you know, so I don't want to wreck it. <laughs> so I get there. They have no wardrobe. 
they have that we're we're borrowing the boat from a guy Pan Am, and also. So I have no wardrobe. So I see a waiter at a at an outdoor restaurant who's my size, and I said, uh, "Can I buy your clothes?" And he said, "What?" And so, but it was it had a stripe down. They were they were like a camino. Uh, what do you call it? They were they looked like a it could be a cop or it could be a doorman or whatever. And I have saved the whale pins, <laughs> my shoulder bag, saved the whale and, you know, all of that stuff. So I, I bought it from him. You weren't allowed to have a gun down in Jamaica, so I carved my own gun for the holster. <laughs> and saved the whale pins on my epilepsy and turned them upside down so you couldn't read it. And it turned myself into a harbor cop. So... Uh, so that's, that was my tenacity. And I was watching Jim's tenacity who made a mountain out of crap. He really did. He had miniatures. We had the whole crew making miniature boats that have to blow up in the, in the parking lot and all of that kind of stuff. So but I ended up, the first scene I was in was to pull up by a pier. They didn't let me learn how to use the boat. So I ended up putting the, the boat up on the pier. Mm -hmm. You should have seen the owner of it. You know, the guy was a big, huge Jamaican guy. And look what you did to my boat, man. And it was like <laughs> flipping up. I said, Jim, you said you would get between me and that guy. So <laughs> You got the chance to, to work with Rip Torm in the film, The Hit List. What, what do you remember about working with him? Oh, he was a powerhouse. That guy was a powerhouse. <laughs> and, he, and he was really kind, man. He's, you know, <laughs> I liked him a lot. I did. Because I, I was trying to raise my game to the point where he would believe me that I was capable of killing and have done it in the past, you know. So, right. I mean, so I had to raise my game in order to get him... I just wanted him to believe me. It's all I needed. And I had <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the right stuff. T tell us about prepping for the role of Wally Shearer. Oh, you know, we were all so happy to be in that movie because NASA to us, you know, you, you have the astronauts and you have Ames research and you've got uh, stuff out at uh, up here. You know, the, where the whole culture of NASA was seemed to be squeaky clean and, and absolutely, uh, we were like, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know, spam in the can was an unfortunate description by the, the writer of the book. Not, you know, and we even made a point of it in the movie. I mean, the director did. That, that that's not true at all. I mean, you yeah. you make you can use that analogy if you want to be a you want to be a cute, but but really those guys in the early days of of the seven astronauts, those seven Mercury seven, there nothing was known. This was all the unknown, and so they had. 
they had things to figure out what would happen if you freaked out in the capsule? What would happen? You know, they tried to push every button in, in the human, you know, the, but they're dealing with pilots, by the way. So they're not going to flip out because the, you're, you're feeling something different, you know, like weightless. And, and then it was a very political time. We were after beating the Russians because the Russians had already done it. But we wanted to orbit, you know. And anyway, it, it, it was a race to space. It wasn't, you know, that story, the right stuff. Uh, you know, they, they made fun of us, all the other pilots, the test pilots would make fun of us because we had shot a monkey up there and a dog, you know, I mean, so they didn't, they didn't open that door very nicely for us, you know, and so, but as a lot had happened in, in you know, at NASA uh, over the years between the real period, which was in, you know, in the sixties and, and then while we were making the movie. So we had so much, more knowledge that we could um, emotionally handle it. it they, the stuff that was going on was just trite, you know, and it was goofy, some of it, goofy. You know, some of the tests were really goofy. They were, you know. But anyway, the, the truth of it is, it, it was a great feeling to rub elbow with NASA and Ames research and all of that. It was great. We all felt as patriotic as the flag, you know, while we were making the movie. I had a dream and this really happened. I had a dream that Wally Sharar came to me in a dream and said, go over to, uh, which was, you just drive straight over to Nevada he said, go into a casino to a roulette wheel and bet on these numbers. He gave me like five numbers, bet on them. Don't drink, no dames, and just bet those numbers. And I was off the next day and it was a snowstorm and I drove, I drove over to Nevada. Wow. Bet those numbers. And one enough to buy a GTO. Wow. That's, that's divine intervention right there. I know. It was a dream. <laughs> but I follow my dreams, man. Are you going <laughs> tell me that? You know, it's like, oh, shit, I'm going. I, I came back and all the guys were like blown away. They were going, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Magic. <laughs> Did you get to meet with the real Wally Shira when you worked on the right stuff? Yeah, he leaned down to me and said, uh, he was sitting right behind me at, uh, at the Kennedy Center in Washington because we got invited to the White House as well. Oh, wow. And he, yeah, this kid from New York who shined shoes. <laughs> Don't think I didn't remember that. <laughs> but anyway, he, he leaned over and he says, hey, Lance, I think they think I didn't do anything. <laughs> I wanted to tell you, uh, I was wearing my flight jacket from the movie. So it was Lieutenant Commander Sharar, Wally Sharar. So the tax guy must have come to the show. 
and said, we saw you win a whole shitload of money on a roulette. <laughs> wow. Never, but I thought, oh, I'm going to pay for this. <laughs> now, you were very good friends with legendary stunt writer Rex Rossi. How, how did you manage to strike up a friendship with him? With who? Uh, Rex Rossi. Oh, God, Rex. I'm trying to remember how we met. Rex became a, became the godfather of my daughter. I have two wow. daughters, and Rex wanted to be my godfather, her, her godfather. <laughs> and, you know, and my, my wife at the time actually painted a, um, an Indian head on his motorcycle. Rex rode a motorcycle all the time. He was either on a horse or a motorcycle, I mean, it said. But he was a great stuntman from the early days, you know. He actually doubled Tyrone Power and, and uh, Zorro, did all of, wow. the, all of the sword fighting and the jumping and leaping. He had the strongest legs of any stuntman around. Any, any stuntman would tell you that. He could, he could run up a wall. Wow. I mean, but Rex, I'm trying to remember how we met. Was it on one of your Westerns or was it earlier than that? It was, but I'm trying to remember which one. Because uh, for a while, I did a whole series of Westerns, different characters. Did you meet on Gunfighter's Moon or maybe Quick and the Dead? I'm sorry? Did, did you meet on uh, Gunfighter's Moon? Oh, no. But Gunfighter's Moon was a wonderful story about him. Uh, you know, Rex and I... We didn't want to do bullshit westerns, you know. I mean, right. we wanted to have ways of getting on and off of horses or, or whatever we were going to do. Original, kind of something original. Mm-hmm. And they had me at one point in, uh, in, in the only scene where I shoot a gun is, well, a couple of them. But, but anyway, I shoot a, a bullet through a card, a vase of space that, this girl is holding up and instead of just standing in the street and shooting it i said rex this guy's a showman it's like you it's like what you are and so uh we came up with that me flipping off the back and shooting under the belly we came up with that and then when we got up to you uh tucson uh, i showed sam raimi that I asked the stunt guys to bring out a white horse, you know. And so when we did it, Sam Raimi was very young and he was so excited. He said, no, no, that's in the movie. That's definitely in the movie. Because I flipped off and shot the card and all of that. And and it was kind of original. And that was Rex's kind of thinking. He was, he was always able to come up with something, mm-hmm. you know, how I mount a horse or how I don't. And I became a very good rider because of him. You know, it was like, he was my buddy. He was my, you know, my, he was part of my family, you know, so he met a girl up in Shasta in his late eighties. Rex never really told anybody his real age because he, remember he works with, 
and Tom makes a circus and all of this over the years. I mean, that's a long time ago. And how old was he when he was working in the nineties? He must've been in his seventies or eighties. I think eighties, at least, you know, he went on and on and probably until his nineties, he was the greatest trick rider ever. He'd stand on the back of a horse and rope. and You couldn't. Wow. He was amazing. But anyway, he went up there and, and then he passed away. Like he was up Mount Shasta with a new girlfriend, about half his age. <laughs> wow. What do you remember the most about working with Sam Raimi on Quick and the Dead? I, I really think that the excitement of having any any piece of equipment that he wanted to shoot, any shot that he wanted, was in his hands was in his hands and he was excited i mean every minute of the day nothing could deter him it was a beautiful sight really the, the woman that did my wardrobe in that mm-hmm. was a german lady who was is one of the best uh, costumers in the world i think and it was just amazing and and it gave me the character in a way i put it on in a and I was sitting out on a porch and in, in the town and, and it was dark. And I thought if I was sitting by a fire campsite, um, with this outfit on and these guns, these beautiful guns, um, um, and, and a bunch of thieves rode by they would take everything I had. They'd shoot me first and then take everything. And I thought that was the old West. Just, the old West was a horrible fucking place. Oh, yeah. you know, in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's people turning other people into less than them, you know, so. Right. Now, uh, before we leave, we're, we're going to take a couple of fan questions. Usually when I do a podcast, I like to put a questionnaire out in different Facebook and social media groups. So here we go. Henry Ossier asks, is the outfit you wore in Quick of the Dead the same one you wore in Dead Man? No. Uh-uh. Completely different. And I had, all, I had all silver teeth made because the guy had, he was in a rage all the time because he had toothaches back in the day, the toothaches. If you had a toothache, you were half dead, you know what I mean? So... No, it wasn't different, totally different. They, he should get a, uh, yeah, just compare them, no, totally different. I don't keep anything from movies. I give them away. There was a coat that I made for Near Dark that, that we made. I had a, a great uh, customer on that one too, but I wanted, I wanted a specific kind of look where I, I sewed a rebel flag inside and all of this stuff. Because I, what I gave myself for that character was that I was in the uh, Southern um, Navy on an ironclad. And we got destroyed and uh, by, by more of a monitor kind of ironclad. And, and, we, and we drifted through the marshes men lying on the deck dying with their chest split open and steaming into the 
into the night. And uh, no. So the whole the whole point I'm trying to bring up is that the creation of the character is a lot, a percentage, a very big percentage of the wardrobe and how well it's done and 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 what it represents, you know, that kind right. of thing. So there's that whole element, you know, it's it's like an art piece. I mean, everybody on a movie is working with an art piece, especially when you get into the the old West. I mean, it, the Italians do, they do sweat and handkerchiefs and embroidered shirts, where the Americans do a whole other thing. I mean, it, you don't want to be, you don't want to be, uh, you know, like, you want to be your own thing, you know, every movie. So anyway, did I answer your question? I'm not yes, sure. you did. <laughs> Uh, Darren Smith asks, when you get a script, do you check first to see uh, when your character dies in the film? I only die half the time. But, yes, I do. (laughs) And how he dies. Anthony Gibbons asks, is there any chance of a revival of Millennium? I I doubt it. We're going to have a party here on the 1st of October where directors that worked on it and, and other actors that are with it and, you know, that were with us. And we're going to have a party right here at my house. So it's, it's the 25th year since Millennium. Wow. Yeah, 25 years ago. And we're still hanging on, you know. <laughs> I don't know if it'll ever be done. I, I've been wanting to do a movie of it. I don't understand why Disney or Fox just doesn't like go back and remaster those episodes and release them on Hulu. It's, it's ripe for rediscovery. Yeah. It's a, it's a almost an impossibility. You know, everybody's gone on. Right. Yeah. Bill Jackson asks, have you ever been offered a script that was so bad and so ridiculous that you just had to turn it down? Oh, uh, Yes. I have. I'm not going to tell you which one. <laughs> yes. I mean, of course. I mean, and, it, and it's always this way. I, I, want to, uh, I want you to star in this movie, and we don't have the money yet, but, but if you agree to do it, uh, you know, like give us a, a thing that says you will do it. Uh, and usually the script is pretty lumpy. You know, it just doesn't, it's not a good script. It's, it's, a, it's a, a tangible dream for the guy that wrote it. That's what it is. But that's not a script necessary, necessarily, you know. Yep. I have one right now that I, my jaw dropped. It was so good. And I'm going to go do it. So, but it's like, uh, it, you don't know who, what, where, when, or how a movie's going to happen for you. Mm-hmm. And so think of all of the elements that are in that, that it takes to go do a movie. How many elements, business-wise, everything else, you know? It's incredible. It's an incredible phenomenon. And it's changing. It's altering. You know? Right. 
Well, Lance, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of What a Character. You've been a great guest. Um, when your next movie comes out, please come back on and, and let's talk about it. All right, Colin. Yeah, it's really cool. You're out in Florida doing this with uh, with with uh, wallpaper behind you that fits. <laughs> <laughs> It's this isn't great. wallpaper. I'm, not, I'm on an actual movie set. <laughs> Are you really? No. <laughs> See? That's what it is. It's a dream machine. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Thanks for your interest. You're very welcome, sir. Well, that about wraps it up for our interview with Lance Hendrickson. If you want to check out Fallen, which is one of his most recent films, you can find it on streaming platforms such as Amazon Prime, YouTube, Hulu, and Roku. And if you're a horror movie buff, then you might want to check out Lance's latest film, Unhealer. This film can be streamed for free on Tubi or Amazon Prime. The film is essentially about a bullied teenage boy who uses his supernatural powers to take revenge on those who have done him wrong. In the film, Lance plays a faith healer who is hired to rein the boy in, so to speak. So if you are into supernatural horror films, you might want to consider giving it a view. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for our interview with Peter Dobson, where he will talk to us about playing the Val Kilmer role in the original version of Heat, acting alongside Sylvester Stallone in a lost movie, and nabbing Joe Pesci for his upcoming feature film. It's all that and more on next week's episode of What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. Man. Do the thing with the oh, knife. Please. Oh, please. Come on, yeah. 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 Come on, man. Come on, man. All right. Hey, what are you doing, man? Hey, what are you doing? Come Don't on, quit messing around, Drake. Come on. Bishop, hey, man. 
Do it, Bishop. Hey, not me, man. Yeah, you. Hey, come on, come messing around. Don't move. Come on. Trust me. Enjoy your meal. That wasn't funny, man.